Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today we're going to be having a very interesting and unique conversation with a pro-life activist that comes at this from a very different angle than most people. And that is my friend Brian Kemper, who's been doing pro-life activism since before I was born. Those of you uh, who are familiar with the pro-life movement will have heard of Brian Kemper at some point or another. He was part of the Operation Rescue Movement back in the 1990s. He was one of the founders of Rock for Life, which was an organization that did pro-life outreach to those in the music industry. He now works with Priests for Life, but he also just seems to be everywhere and part of everything, speaking at banquets, speaking at marches for life, doing street outreach, live streaming his work uh, onto social media as he engages with people on the abortion issue. And I've wanted to talk to Brian for a long time, actually, because of his many stories from his Operation Rescue days, which I've been privileged to chat with him about uh, in conversations at conferences and other places where we've met up. But what I ended up talking about him uh, with today is I realized actually after he wrote an editorial for the stream recently on his experience uh, almost getting mobbed at a Green Day concert after the lead singer uh, decided that his pro-life booth at the at the festival was an enormous problem. Uh, many of you who follow my writing at thebridgehead.ca or at lifesitenews.com, where I also uh, have a blog, is I've been very interested in the extent to which abortion has shaped American culture. Now, rock and roll music and a lot of these alternative forms of music that, that came of age, or I should say uh, began in the 1960s, really were the anthems of the sexual revolution. And as a result, a lot of those who were singing these anthems were shaped by abortion, and their experiences with abortion shaped their music and shaped their art. And so one of the things that has almost never been examined in pop pop culture is the extent to which abortion has shaped American culture itself. There's actually a, a recent book that came out last year that takes a look at mentions of abortion in, in pop culture and in literature called Choice Words, which is very interesting. But that book misses a lot, I think, of, of the most interesting songs and poems and pieces of literature about abortion. And it also doesn't examine the way that because America's singers and storytellers were shaped by abortion and America was shaped by their songs and their literature, uh, that the the impact of, of abortion on the United States is much much deeper and more fundamental than most people think immediately. And I'm not going to get too deep into this thesis because it's something I've been doing research on for a couple of years. I've been encouraged to turn it into a book. I don't know what I'm going to do with that yet. I've written quite a few articles on this. I've I've written articles on how abortion shaped the rock and roll industry. I've written about how abortion shaped F. Scott Fitzgerald, Ernest Hemingway, um, a, a variety of different poets and singers. And I've written those at thebridgehead.ca and also also here at LifeSiteNews.com. Uh, but Brian Kemper, because of his, his personal relationships with many people inside the music industry, and because he's such an unorthodox figure in the pro-life movement, has a lot of really interesting stories uh, about the way these people think about abortion, about their experiences uh, with abortion, and he has real insights into how abortion has shaped these industries. And so I've wanted to talk to him for a long time. I've wanted to just hear about all of his stories. And uh, we had a conversation where we both talked about his stories and we talked about many of his experiences uh, in the rock and roll music industry and some of the crazy things he's experienced as a result. Here's that conversation. Brian, I'm really pumped you could uh, join me. I haven't seen you in a little bit since the borders closed. I think the last time we saw each other was what? In, in Washington, D.C. with, uh, with uh, Jeff White. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. No, that was that was really awesome. And one of the things uh, from hanging out with you over the years I've discovered is that you've got some of the craziest stories in the pro-life movement. I was saying to you before we started here that we've had a lot of pro-life activists on the show with a lot of crazy stories, but your stories are definitely... Uh, some of the strangest ones. And you just started telling some of those stories in an editorial over at the stream, which I've written for once in a while as well. Maybe fill our listeners in just to start off before we back up, maybe start off with the story that you told over at the stream. Okay. Well, it's, it started back in the early days of rock for life um, after about uh, I think the third rock for life show in 1994, 
um, I got a call from uh, Perry Farrell from the band Jane's Addiction and Porno for Pyros, and he was the founder of Lollapalooza. Lollapalooza right now is a single concert festival in Chicago every year, but it started as a tour. This was one of the first big touring festivals, like before Warp Tour and all that. And he had three pro-life or uh, pro-choice organizations in their, what they called their mind field, their nonprofit area. And he wanted balance. So he asked me if I'd be willing to do a pro-life booth. Now, Rock for Choice and the other groups were getting money. They got you know, tour bus, they got food. He said, you can have a table, four tickets in, and that's it. Like I had to provide my own transport, everything. So this was in the early days a friend of ours rented us a little teeny car. We had a bunch of literature. There was four of us. We got to Dallas. We, we literally, the night before the, the first festival date, we had to sleep in the car. We had $6 left to our name. And they would not allow us to sell anything because we had so we had, had some, some, some different stuff. And they said, you can't sell anything. You can accept donations. So as we're setting up, before the crowd came in, this guy with uh, a crazy punk rock guy skateboards over to my table and he looks at me and and i feel realize he has to be with one of the bands or something because they hadn't let the crowd in yet and he goes i'm gonna piss on you i'm like whoa let me first my name's brian what's your name <laughs> he says i'm billy joe armstrong i seem for green day now this was right when dookie came out so th they they were just blowing up all over the scene and he, I looked at him and I said, why would you pee on me? And he goes, you don't have a right to your opinion. So I said, okay, take me on stage. 20,000 people, debate me, I dare you. He said, no. He grabbed some of our literature, walked by the pro-choice booth next to us and said, um, uh, watch what I do on stage. So I went around to, the, to when they played and he started ranting and raving about us and he took a lighter and tried to burn our literature. I'm telling you, it was amazing. It did not catch on fire. I'm watching it. The flame is on it. And he finally got furious. He ripped the literature in half and said, go beat them up and destroy their booth. So back then I weighed like 300 something pounds. You never seen a fat boy run so fast. I'm telling you, I ran to that booth and that crowd came around and all of a sudden people started saying, well, wait a minute. I don't disagree with this. And we had abortion victim imagery there. And people were going, that's what an abortion is? And about an hour later, no one beat us up. No one destroyed our booth. And there were over $200 in the donation jar. And basically for the rest of the tour, we had enough money to get gas, eat, some hotel rooms, camped at the beach a couple times. But we were able to go through this whole tour and just have amazing conversations and spread the pro-life message in a place that it had never been spread. Now, this is so we'll back up now a little bit now that a lot of listeners have been hooked, because, again, as I said to you before, <laughs> we've had stories about, um, you know, Francis Schaefer, Mother Teresa, half a dozen presidents. You know, we've had uh, we've had your boss, Father Frank Pavone on, and he's 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 met all sorts of, of crazy people and, and told us all these stories. But we, we have never had a story about a major American rock band trying to set pro-life literature on fire on stage in front of 20,000 people. So that's new. So let's back up a little bit for. I suspect a lot of people in the pro-life movement know you because you're kind of ubiquitous. You're one of these pro-life activists that I've run into, I think, in like five or six states, you know, just at different conferences and stuff like yeah. that. But a lot of them won't know your backstory, like how you got first involved in the pro-life movement, how you became pro-life. Mm -hmm. And then your really strange and winding path from 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 that all the way to working for Priest for Life as you do now. So maybe start, start at the beginning for us for a moment. All right. Well, I guess the beginning would be in, in 1966 when my mom con, uh, conceived me. Um, she wasn't married and you know what the time was like back then and she tried to have an abortion. It wasn't able to. And then my grandparents uh, made my mom move to San Francisco from LA to make sure that none of the neighbors would know she was pregnant. Um, so that's how my life started. Uh, when I was born with a disease called spinal meningitis, uh, was pronounced dead, brought back to life. They told my parents I'd be, you know, severely brain damaged for the rest of my life. Uh, I was brought up, you know, adopted, passed around, a lot of abuse, physical, sexual, mental abuse, and all of that. Ended up as a drug addict um, on the streets. And in 1987, I overdosed at a Grateful Dead Bob Dylan concert and 
the doctor in the hospital shared Christ with me. And not in a way that I'd ever heard before. I'd always heard how evil I was. I'm a sinner. I'm going to hell. And this doctor just talked to me about how loved I was and how much value I had. And no one in my life had ever told me I had value. So that that was uh, an amazing thing. And uh, about a week later, I was in a church. They were I was living there, uh, getting sober. They were helping me out. And I went to see this band in 1987 called The Crucified, which was a Christian punk band. And they sang a song uh, called The Silent Scream. And I remember talking to the, the drummer's girlfriend, now it's his wife, this was a long time ago, they were still in high school back then, about this song. And I bought the uh, cassette tape and listened to it over and over and over. And uh, eventually ended up at another church where a lot of people that had been involved in Operation Rescue. And there was a, a metal band called Precious Death, uh, meaning the precious death of Christ. And they took me to my first rescue. And uh, that, that, that day I ended up getting arrested the first day. And God just put a passion in my heart to, to start working in, in the pro-life movement from there. So here's the interesting thing is that, so I don't know much about, um, about, about like the, the music scene at all. It's, uh, it's, uh, I came from a, a, a the kind of community that frowned on music like that. It's definitely not my taste, um, which is why you've got sleeve tattoos and I don't, but yeah, and the, the first, the first person to try to give me Christian music tried to hand me an Amy Grant tape. <laughs> that. But one of the one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about, because I've heard you tell so many crazy stories, and I get that whenever you're hanging out with a bunch of, of pro-life activists who have crazy stories, that not all of them can be told on air. But specifically, you have a lot of stories about uh, about the Operation Rescue Days. One of the things I've always found so interesting about the guys who ended up, the guys and the ladies, I've, we've had Cheryl Conrad on too, um, yeah. who, who are interested in rescue, is that like it often there was all often like such such a small amount of time between them becoming passionate about the pro-life uh, issue and then them getting arrested right like troy newman was on his honeymoon you know got a picture of an aborted baby and you know a week later is you know getting arrested in front of clinics and stuff like that and, and you have quite a similar story right from getting involved with the church to getting arrested yeah you know, on behalf of babies that you'd never even really thought about much before. So what are your memories of that Operation Rescue period, which was such a huge part of pro-life history that so few people actually think much about anymore? Well, that that first day, I, I had gone to a men's prayer breakfast with a band, like I said, and they took me to, to an abortion mill in downtown Los Angeles. And this was during the Holy Week. So there was 500 pro-abortion activists, 500 pro-lifers, back in a huge thing that they had actually, the pro-abortion activists had put a woman up on a cross half naked to try to mock Christians and such. And I came in with big mohawk and all this stuff and nobody knew I was pro-life. No one knew who I was. So the pro-aborts, I'm 300 something pounds. The pro-aborts look at me and go, hey, can you hold help us with the door, hold the door open? I'm like, oh, okay. So they brought me in and I'm the one guarding to open the door for the women to come in for the abortions. But the first one that comes in, I clamp myself to the door and they realize, oh my gosh, he's not one of us. He's pro-life. Nobody had ever seen a punk rock pro-lifer before. And so that very, very first event I went to, I ended up getting arrested. But it didn't bother me because what happened was that girl coming in ended up talking to sidewalk counselors outside waiting and a baby's life was saved. Like that first day, a human life was saved. And I, I literally, I called my boss, I worked at an oil change place. I called my boss and says, hey, I can't work Saturdays anymore, I have another job. And that was going to be my job. And it was just, I knew right then that this is what I had to do. Where did it go from from there? Because so if you uh, so I'm, I'm trying to do the math in my head. There's 87 rescue started to fall apart around around uh, 91, basically after the summer of mercy in in Wichita, Kansas. Then you have the spring of life in New York, and that was kind of like the last unified event before the thing splintered and kind of fell apart. Yeah, there was also cities of refuge. Um, and which I was year was which year was that again? That was early 90s. That was early 90s, right around that time, probably 90. Two, 
or so. Um, so this was after and, the spring of life in New York then? Yes. I, right. I And this was the first big event. Like, because people in Southern California knew me from the rescues. Okay. So they, they knew me. I went up to Northern California. And again, I showed up and there's people in a prayer circle and I tried to enter to pray with them and they blocked, they thought I was a pro board trying to interrupt them. So that's what I went through several times going to the different things. Um, but yeah, we were still rescuing in Southern California up until about 95, 96. We were still, we were breaking the face laws. Um, we developed some really cool tactics. Like we knew in downtown Los Angeles, Abortion mills would open like one at eight, one at 8.30, one at 8.45, one at nine, one at 9.30. So we would show up, like 20 of us, sit down, pray, block the door. At the final warning by the police, we would all get up and walk away. We knew every woman coming had been counseled and we had that, had that opportunity. And then we would show up at the next abortion mill and go through the same thing. It would five hours that day of going from abortion mill to abortion mill to abortion mill, waiting to the last one. And like, we, I remember one where it was Cheryl Conrad, Jeff White, and, and a few of us, we, we went in, I would go in as a truth team. I would go in with a young girl and we would pretend, you know, to be pregnant, she was pregnant. And we went into one abortion mill and no one was there yet. We, we got there at the wrong time. There was just a nurse there and She's like, oh, we don't open for an hour. Hold on a second. And I, I told the girl that was with me, I said, start crying. And she did. And the nurse went, left the room to go get her some Kleenex. I had noticed right over the counter was their giant appointment book for months to come. And we reached over, grabbed that appointment book, ran out the door, passed that over to Cheryl Conrad and Cheryl Solinger, actually. And she began dialing every number and said, oh, I'm sorry, we have to give you a new address for your appointment. And we gave the every single abortion appointment the address to the Pregnancy Help Center. <laughs> so yeah, we had some crazy fun, fun things, but we were doing that up until about 95 or so in, in LA. Now here's the inter- it, it's kind of funny when you say that kind of people judge a book by its cover like there's there's a really good reason for that we at, at can, the canadian center for bioethical reform we do we go door to door to talk to people about abortion so we have all kinds of different projects and we'll we'll bring abortion victim photography and have conversations door to door and if the door opens and there's like a girl with purple hair and a nose piercing or, you know, there's a dude with a with a mohawk of the sort you used to have. Yeah, our, our instinctive, dis, uh, you know, is like, oh, we're going to not have a great conversation, right? This person <laughs> is not going to be a fan of what we have to say. And then occasionally we're really surprised. But um, what was it like when, when you joined the movement? Because, again, like even the people that I, I've met you with, um, like none of them had your background. You, mm-hmm. can, you, you were kind of a sort of a unique person in the anti-abortion movement because of, of your connections. And so what, what was that like? Uh, I know, I know, uh, I know you made a lot of friends very, very quickly, but what was it like being the only guy who was part of a very different scene than everybody else? Did people see that as an opportunity to, to reach out to a different group of people on the abortion issue or was it just seen as sort of a novelty? You know, I think it was a little of both. There were a few people, Judy Brown, Jeff White, Father Frank Pavone, Joe Scheidler, who welcomed me in immediately. I mean, these these gargantuan leaders of the movement welcomed me in. A lot of people were very skeptical, like, this guy can't really be pro-life. He has to be undercover. So, but it, it also got me amazing opportunities. Like, I got invited to do Bill Maher I, I, when he was on ABC, Politically Incorrect with Bill Maher. Um, I got invited to five episodes of that. I got to have a cigar with John Lydon of the Sex Pistols talking about pro-life. Uh, John Stewart on the air actually once said I was the most intelligent guy that he was ever afraid of in his life. Um, the Back then when Gary Sharon was the, the third lead singer of Van Halen, saw me on Bill Maher and then wrote and he used me to release an open letter to Eddie Vedder of Pearl Jam, uh, putting him, like calling him out on all his pro-abortion stuff. Gary actually got kicked out of Van Halen for doing pro-life work with me. Valerie Bertinelli hated the fact that he was doing pro-life work and being in the band. So there was those moments definitely where there was discrimination or that, 
but there was also some amazing moments. One of the, my favorite though, Pat Mahoney in, in, I believe it was 1994, took me backstage at the March for Life and introduced me to Nellie Gray. And Nellie Gray comes over and she's like, Brian, I can handle the mohawk and the tattoos. And she, she looked down at my hands and says, but can you please stop painting your fingernails? I can't handle that. So literally because of Nellie Gray, I, I, I stopped painting my fingernails. <laughs> like, But she welcomed me. And she was the one who had me, invited me to start the March for Life Youth Rally. Like Nellie Gray didn't, was not a respecter of persons. She just loved the fact that I was willing to get involved and be pro-life. She didn't care about how I looked. And now that's how I, that's how it is. Like 99% of the people accept me. But back then it was, it was tough. Now I'm really interested in in some of the people that you've talked to and their opinions because so I'll give you an example like Bill Maher is a, is a pro-choice guy but has admitted on the air uh, that at, at a certain point abortion's obviously wrong. I remember him saying on the air, you know, um, abortion is the one issue you can be opposed to without being religious because at, at a certain point, you know, when you see the baby sucking his or her thumb, you know, it's obviously wrong to kill it. And there was like dead silence at the panel table because nobody knew what to say to that because he'd kind of let the cat out of the bag. John Stewart has said the same thing. He said to Mike Huckabee during one conversation that he thinks same-sex marriage is a no-brainer, but he says abortion is the one issue he has a hard time with because you know at a certain point again even to his secular mind the baby is obviously a baby do you uh, remember what the conversations with bill maher on this issue were like at the time oh absolutely uh see he first brought me on he made a joke um one day uh in his uh monologue he was like oh uh here there's this new anti-abortion group called rock for life it, they're trying to use music to to stop women from having abortions. It's too bad they were successful with Hanson's mother. It was a joke about Hanson. And so Jimmy, uh, my my uh, our news producer at American Life League, who now runs Crossroads, Jim Nolan, called the producer and Bill Maher invited me on the show because he he thought there's no way someone tattooed looking like me or whatever could be intelligent at all but he wanted to have that conservative voice. And I ended up going back five times, but he said on the show, he said, he said, uh, life isn't precious. I don't understand what's so precious about life. It's easy to make. It's easy to take. You know, he, he even said, I'm pro death. I'm not pro choice. I'm pro death. But in, in over the years, I think he's definitely gone more cent center than he was left in the beginning. I remember being at a party he invited me to once, and uh, I think it was, uh, who's the mom of the Judds? Naomi Judd uh, came up to me and started talking to me about pro-life, and Bill's just like looking at us like, like she literally stopped talking to him to talk to me about pro-life, and that annoyed him at first. But he's definitely, I think even now, he's getting more and more conservative, at least more centered than he, than he was back then. And Hopefully it was because of myself and other pro-lifers that went on the show and were not afraid. See, back then too, Jonathan, I was told by so many pro-lifers, don't go on the show, don't do it, don't do it, he's evil, he's evil. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but darkness is not the opposite of light, it's the absence thereof. And if I can be a light in the darkness, I'll, I, I was ready to go on Howard Stern, but it got it got canceled for, for another reason and I never went back. But people were like, you can't go do shows like that. And I'm like, that's where I want to be. I'd rather be there than a church. Tell me about the uh, the John Stewart thing, because I, I've always been interested in his views as well, just because he, none of his, all of his comments about abortion have revealed ambivalence. So in what context did he mention you? Okay, so we were on the show and um, we were talking about uh, birth control and such. And I mentioned abortifacient. I used the word abortifacient. And he's like, aborta what? And he's like, you were the most intelligent guy that I'm a bit afraid of. I'd hate to run into you in a, on a dark alley. Um, and he, he, he did not go as hardcore, you know, pro-choice as the rest. Obviously he's claims to be pro-choice, but um, I had, uh, I've had several people on the show that, that, once you start talking about it, they can understand, like, I've even corrected Bill Mark is, uh, he asked me once he asked the question, he goes, if you were to go into a burning building and you saw Bill Clinton, because Clinton was president at that time, and a baby, who would you say first? And every, every other panelist, all the pro-choice people said, oh, the baby. And I said, no, I'd save the first person I can reach. 
I said, I wouldn't put one life more valuable than the other. I would go to the first person I could reach. And then, and that just blew him away. That's when he started making the comments about how is life so valuable? And even the other contestants then were or the other, the interviewees were like, yeah, he's right. You, you, you save the first person you can save. So I've done a lot of research. I know I, I sent you some of these articles before on, on the role of abortion in the rock and roll industry. Most people will know, like, look, rock and roll was slang for having sex in a car, right? And yeah. so the whole make love, not war uh, slogan of the 1960s resulted in people making bloody war on both, right? In other words, uh, you know, the sexual revolution of which the rock and roll industry provided the anthems. Um, ended up with 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 a lot of abortion, and so and, and you have this in in Hollywood. You have this in celebrity, right? You have the sexual revolution producing the victims, which are preborn babies. And so, when you went to parties with Bill Maher and and you talked to people, what surprised you about being there, right? Because when you say you know like the, like well, that this one woman is very very pro life, most listeners are going to be like, you got to be kidding me, right? But I've always suspected that there are a lot more people who recognize the pro life worldview than you might think. Just just because the pro-life worldview is actually obvious. Like you've got to do a lot of mental gymnastics to convince yourself it isn't a baby. And most people instinctively know that it is, which means there has to be a lot of people out there who would never articulate a worldview, but probably actually hold that worldview privately. So what was your experience at these parties and stuff like that? Well, I I can tell you there's, I I know so many celebrities that are pro-life that I, I can't mention, but there are some I can, um, but if you look back and like even talking to, to Johnny Rotten, John Lydon of the Sex Pistols, it, it, in our private conversation, he was, I mean, they had a song called Bodies about abortion. They, he was pro-life. I want to interrupt um, you there for just a minute because on that song I've read, I actually, when I was running the pro-life club back at university, the head of the student society um, I, I, like said to me, and he was like, not on my side. He's like, you've got to look at bodies by the sex pistols. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not into this kind of music at all. Why should I look at this? And he's like, no, check it out. And I read it and I, and I did the research and it, and, and the backstory that I know of. So I want you to correct me if I'm yeah. wrong about the backstory is that there was a groupie who followed them around who had slept with a bunch of them and then had a bunch of abortions and that she actually took an aborted baby to his door at one point and presented him the remains of the baby in a plastic bag is that accurate or do i have that, that wrong? from what i know that is accurate yes um and again like john Lydon is interesting because when there's no cameras around he just has a conversation like this and that's what happened we had that and as soon as the, the tv cameras came out he snapped back into johnny rotten like so he was a different one um but if you listen to Two Minutes to Midnight by Iron Maiden, pro-life song. Um, Silent Scream by Slayer. Slayer, supposedly like one of the most satanic bands of all time who actually don't believe any of that stuff that they sing about. They have a pro-life song. Uh, Galactic Cowboys, King's X. There are so many of that early rock genre that are actually pro-life. And now, now where does that come from? Because part of me has always felt like it's not surprising that when you get into the darker genres of music, that abortion is a subject because abortion is an incredibly dark subject. And especially for people um, who created lyrics explicitly based on shocking people, that was the intent. It is hard it's kind of interesting because one of the last things you could do in a desensitized culture in the nineties, you know, when George Carlin had won and pop culture was getting really crude. One of the last things you could actually do was talk about abortion bluntly, right? Talk about abortion as killing a baby, actually discuss the the gory details of what takes place when abortion takes place. So where, what is the basis of these songs? And are, is, are we talking about people who are writing, you know, songs based on their experience with abortion, things that they've witnessed? Or are these people who are just saying, here's a taboo subject that will shock and anger everyone. Like, here's one of the last untouchable subjects. It was Peter Hitchens who said, abortion is the last thing you can't show on TV, right? You can show anything else, but you can't show an abortion in progress because it, people will be too horrified. So what's the context for, uh, for all these, these, these songs and this music that you're talking about? Well, I could tell you from like Slayer, Tom Araya was raised in a Catholic family. He doesn't believe the stuff they sing about. His brother Cisco played in, in Christian bands that I've worked with. Um, so he has that strong background of his mother and you know probably grandmother and such. And a lot of these bands, they do, they sing about things um, it's very interesting there, there right now on TikTok, there's this priest who's taking 
songs and then showing how the lyrics mirror scripture and how so many things in life do. Um, and you can look at that in, in a lot of, a lot of those old metal songs, a lot of the Metallica songs are very biblical in some of the stuff that they sing about, or you, you would like, okay, a big one for me would be running with the devil by Van Halen. Most people know that song running with the devil. If you actually listen to the lyrics, he's not saying this is a good thing. He's talking about how empty that life is and how there's no love to find there running with the devil. I think a lot of these bands, like you said, just they do sing about things that shock people. But if you truly listen to the lyrics, some of them are just telling the truth, how this life is empty and how this stuff is it, Metallica's master of puppets about cocaine addiction and such. There's so much in this art. And I think it's because we know that God is real and that everything around us shows us what God is. So I think a lot of these bands end up singing a lot of truth and don't even realize they are. Right, because because truth sort of escapes. I've always found it really interesting the extent to which people want to be rock stars and want to be part of that scene because so many of these bands are like, my life is empty, it's miserable, it, you know, I can't find love, there's nothing here at the end of the day, follow me. Yeah. And everybody's like, sure, I'll, I'll do that. But back to, you know, abortion and its presence in the rock and roll scene, like the more research I did, because I've I've been researching for a long time, the impact of abortion on the American art scene, because I think it's interesting the extent to which abortion is this invisible factor in the creation of culture, that abortion has actually shaped American culture in a way that most people don't understand because it's shaped the storytellers of our culture. So um, Elvis Presley's mistress um, aborted his child, Hank Williams Jr., um, lost at least one, maybe more. Uh, Frank Sinatra, uh, several children lost to abortion. Um, and when you start working your way up to the list, the Rolling Stones, right? Um, what's the what's the um, the um, Keith Richards? Him? Mm-hmm. Sorry, yeah, he pushed a girl into an abortion. The girl never forgave him for it. Um, Aerosmith, you know, the famous one, uh, Steven Tyler, um, um, Leonard Cohen, um, wrote some of the most like brutal lyrics on abortion, like, like kill another fetus. Now we don't like children. Anyhow, I have seen the future baby. It is murder. We now found out that his famous, famous poem slash song, goodbye, Marianne, Marianne, he actually, actually aborted his child. And according to a recent book, at least two of his other children were aborted as well. Now, if we understand abortion as a deeply powerful experience and, and a transformative experience and like the elimination of one's offspring, which uh, at least part of that would be agreed upon by both pro-choice and pro-life activists. And you would say these people created the anthems of an entire culture. What you're saying is that abortion has had a profound impact on the way America expresses herself, on the way her storytellers express herself. And this is an angle that really has not been examined um, heretofore because uh, it's just abortion sort of ignored. A pro-lifers focus on saving babies, not really on understanding how abortion shaped the culture. Storytellers are just expressing the sort of the primal screams of their heart, not really examining the stuff in depth. And the only the only rock star I, I tracked down who actually said really macabre things about abortion was unsurprisingly Marilyn Manson, who describes in detail the abortion mm-hmm. procedure where the top of his baby's skull got ripped off. Yes. Uh, literally, that's what he writes, and he's he's really gloating about it. So, when when in the context of of abortion shaped America's storytellers, and therefore helped shape America, what sort of conversations and experiences have you had with these people, and what stories can you share with the listeners that kind of inform that thesis? You know, I it, if you it, the the funny thing is is my private conversations with some of these people are so different than on camera, so different than that. I've had conversations with even Jerry Springer and, and different people like that. And I I think a lot of people will tell me that they they sympathize, they empathize with my, my position, they understand my position, but for some reason they are afraid of that public. And it's sort of like, you know, almost an, a cancel culture before there was cancel culture. Like if, if a celebrity or somebody came out being pro-life or, or conservative before, that was absolutely the death to their to their career. And so I think a lot of that has happened. But, and, but I believe that, I mean, Jonathan, if we really look at what's going on in politics and, and, and everywhere, 
abortion is almost the cornerstone of of what is going on everywhere and how politicians are are elected. We'd like to say it's the economy and it's other things like that. It comes down to sex and abortion. It really does come down to sex and abortion. And it, it, it blows my mind. It literally blows my mind how they can't see this whole how their body, the bodily autonomy argument has absolutely, in my opinion, been eliminated when we start talking about COVID-19 and vaccines and masks. Like they, they have zero credibility in that argument. And, and that's, that's it's, it, to me, it's like every time we come up with another argument, they, they have another way, there, there's something that they always try to stand on that's a straw man that has absolutely no foundation, but it, it needs to be talked about in a very frank, honest, and I'm sorry, I don't care if it offends you way. I, I honestly do not care if I offend someone by saying that abortion is the killing of an innocent, innocent human being, because I know if I say anything less, I'm offending God. And I'd rather offend a million humans than God. I, I know I got off on a little tangent there. I, I, I hope I answered the question, but. One of the things I was um, I was hoping you could do, because I know you're writing a book on this right now. So a lot of this material is, is fresh because writing a book has a real way of, of, of focusing the mind and forcing you to come up with things you hadn't thought about and, and recover yes. details and things like that. So what are some of the conversations you've had about abortion with celebrities, you know, rock musicians, uh, the the unexpected people that, that, that were totally unexpected to you um, that you would not have thought um, that this was their take on abortion, but it actually was because I think the rock and roll industry is known justifiably as a very pro abortion industry, right? It's sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Those three things together generally end up um, creating dead babies. So what are some of the discussions you've had that have actually really surprised you and would probably surprise the listeners? You know, I think I think I have to also be very careful because I have had private conversations. Um, I, I will say, um, I I was on an airplane, uh, and you you know that because we fly so many places and so often, I get upgraded once in a while. So I got upgraded to first class, and uh, I, I have to be very careful saying that because we both work for nonprofits. And what do you mean you're flying first class? I actually have been yelled at for posting a picture when I got upgraded before, but I was sitting next to, um, I'll just say an Olympic athlete. Um, and as we started talking, she told me about her two abortions. And how much that affected her and how she was pressured because of sports and all of that and such. And it hurt her so much, but now, um, now has, has children and is doing great, uh, wonderful. But the hurt and the pain, I think are probably the, the things that hit me the most, because that's what I've talked to people that I get intense with is talking to them about healing and about how God heals us and how, his grace is 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 perfect and such. So I think I think that probably the the ones that that stand out to me the most are are about the pain, and about the suffering that they go through after, and about not not knowing what they had done until after. I remember um, one woman um, hearing 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 her cries, hearing her crying after I told her I, I was explaining to her that I said, like, if you take a globe and you take your finger and you go north, once you hit the North Pole, you're then going south. And once you hit the South Pole, you're going north. And I said, what happens if you take your finger and go east? And she thought about it. I go, you continue going east. There is no East Pole. I said, the Bible tells us that God throws our sins as far as the east is from the west. That's an infinite distance. And when she realized that, when she accepted that God had thrown that sin away and that she had been washed white as snow, I have never in my life heard tears and crying and moaning the way I heard from her. It, it, it's like all of that evil, all of that pain from that just released off of her. And that was probably one of the most incredible sounds I've ever heard in my life. It was, it's literally hearing that purge come out of her 
because she realized she had been forgiven. One of uh, like hearing your stories, one of the things I'm always very interested in is like, look, there are like thousands, if not millions of people in the United States who desperately try to get close to singers. You know, you've got the groupies, you've got the fans, you know, everybody wants autographs. They want pictures. Now it would be selfies. Um, and yet you seem to manage to have all of these conversations about one of the most intimate subjects with a lot of a lot of the, the major culture makers um, in the United States. How did that come about? I'm very curious as when you reel off a whole bunch of names like Pearl Jam and Von Halen and all these groups, I'm kind of like, how in the world did Brian Kemper, a pro-life activist, end up getting close to all these people, uh, you know, when fans are trying desperately to do so and fail? You know, I, I, I have to give credit, I guess, to God and just being at the right place at the right time. I mean, I the, like the band P.O.D., I helped them get their first record contract. So through things like that, I get to, to meet and, and talk to a lot of people. But it's also just it's the conversation I'll have with anybody from the gas station attendant to the biggest rock star. I'll have the exact same conversation. Uh, Janet Morana and, and Father Frank, whenever I ride an Uber with them, they always make me sit in the front seat because they just want to watch because I will always end up having an abortion and Jesus conversation with the Uber driver every time. I just have, there's something in me that always finds that one way to connect. And I have to give that credit to God. He's given me that passion. But anywhere I go, I will make, make that connection. And, and for some reason, I happen to walk into celebrities or sit next to them on airplanes or you know, it's just, it's what happens. And so I guess, I guess it's, it's God's divine providence that, that that happens, but I'm also willing to talk to them about it. I, I don't care who it is I'm next to. I will have that conversation about abortion. What is the story uh, that you experienced that surprised you the most with some, with, with somebody that people would recognize? Like uh, the Johnny Rodden one has to be pretty far up there, but what's the one that actually surprised you the most besides not getting mobbed by Green Day fans? Yeah, you know, well, the Green Day story is is probably the you know the, one of the bigger ones, um, but I, I I think you know that the the airplane with the Olympic athlete that one to me that one is because I I did get to talk to her about healing and forgiveness and stuff, so that one is probably one of the biggest ones for me. Um, you know, uh, shocking stories maybe maybe your your government when when I flew into to speak at a youth conference in Canada, they 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 stopped me at the border and said, I'm a hate criminal. And they actually, instead of turning me away because I was a hate criminal for my pro-life, they said, oh, if you pay us $250, we'll let you in for this conference. Like I literally had to pay $250 to get into Canada. Yeah, there was pro-life activists who didn't come to my wedding because of the border situation for that exact reason. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think... I, I don't know if there's anyone more shocking than the Green Day one or or that one. That's a, that's that was pretty pretty crazy. So just to just to close off here, because I want to just whet people's appetite for your book, which I'm really looking forward to. Like I've been talking to guys like you, Jeff White, you know, dozens of pro-life activists at all of these these conferences and events now for for a decade. Um, just at, at Joe Scheider's funeral, which I know you couldn't make it into because of weather, you were planning to fly out and then weather held you up. But sitting around a table with like 20 of these people, listening to them discuss all the things they've been doing over 25 years, all the crazy things that have happened, um, most of them with, with a rap record taller than I am for that matter, um, going, going through all this stuff and thinking like, why do none of you people write books? Like, I, like there, there is a handful of, of pro-life memoirs. Joe Scheider's memoir is excellent. Um, well, once you've read Monica Miller's book, there's almost yeah. no other book to read. I'm, just, I'm sorry. I know you've written, but Monica Miller's book was my favorite pro-life book of all time. Well, that's because she is both a memoirist and a phenomenal and a phenomenal writer, but yeah. she doesn't have the same stories you have, no. and you don't have the same story. She doesn't have the same stories Joe has, and so exactly. I love Monica Miller's book. We've had her on the show to talk about her book. I've got an autographed copy on my shelf. I want your guys's too because there isn't enough of them out there. Pro-lifers have spent so much time telling the stories of the babies that they haven't actually ever stopped to tell our own stories and the movement's now 50 years old, right? It's not as new of a movement as it was when all of you guys got involved back in the day. Well, maybe you should be bringing a video camera to some of these meetings with us and start documenting all these stories. I mean, maybe you're, you're going to make that great documentary for pro-life of, of the old stories. Maybe that's you. 
So I will say I, I have, uh, I've got hours and hours and hours of recorded interview on my computer. Just like over the years, I've called yeah. people up, said, hey, can I record your stories? Because I've heard their stories. So I have all that somewhere one day. I'm still holding out uh, for, for the memoirs. I'm really glad you're writing a book. And so it's, that's kind of where I wanted to end. Okay. Um, it, it's kind of talking about your book, but I know the chapter you're working on right now is something every single listener needs to hear about. You wrote an op-ed. I forget which publication the op-ed was for, but uh, um, I read it. My wife I mentioned it again recently because she and one of my colleagues are working on a resource called um, How to Raise Pro-Life Kids. And mm-hmm. it's about how parents can teach their kids about abortion and, and pro-life activism and all this stuff. Um, and they had wanted to use a, a quote from from this op-ed that you wrote um, about discovering that your daughter was pregnant with your grandchild. And I know that this is the part you're working on in the book. So maybe uh, t- tell our listeners what your primary concern is about the way people, even Christians, respond to finding out Absolutely. that their children are pregnant. Because I think this is a message that everybody needs to, 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 to truly understand. Well, this, is, this was a lesson I actually learned from uh, Judy Brown years ago, who had that same situation with, with her daughter showing up and saying she's pregnant. So here I am, a pro-life activist. I've traveled, you know, I've been to 49 states and 28 countries. I've spoken to so many different groups and places, yet right in my own home. The situation came where, where uh, I had to walk into a hallway and my daughter was curled up in a ball and crying and she looked up and she said daddy i'm pregnant and almost time freezes to be honest and i knew i just i i picked her up and i started hugging her and the first words out of my mouth were i love you and she's like daddy aren't are you mad and i'm like no why am I mad that you just told me I'm a grandfather? Like, how could I be mad? You're having a baby. See, most people automatically in that situation, a lot of parents, most automatically their mind goes to, my daughter had sex. My daughter had sex. That happened a while ago. That's, that's a different story. That's a different everything what you're experiencing that moment is the fact that you just found out another human life is on this planet. That's your descendant. That's what we need to focus on. At that moment, I knew that all I needed to do that the most important thing I needed to do was let my daughter know I loved her and I was going to be there for her no matter what. I knew that. And so after we talked for a little bit, I said, where's Logan, her boyfriend, and uh, I went outside and he was standing because he was afraid to come in the house. And as I am approaching him, he's tensing up like, oh, my gosh, I'm about to get my butt kicked. And I hugged him and he's like, what are you doing? And I just whispered in his ear and I'm like, you're stuck with me now, dude. <laughs> and I just like, congratulations, you're a dad. And he did bring up the A word with my daughter but both his mother and I shut him down so fast. But I also had to do something else. My local pregnancy help center, like everybody knows me, I've spoken at their banquets, I've done all this stuff, obviously. I walked in there with my daughter as a patient. And when they took her in for the ultrasound, the, 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 the director of the center walked out and was like, Brian, thank you so much for not being afraid to come in here. I had to go in and say, guess what? My family messes up too. I mess up too. Pride will get in the way. Pride will get in the way. The amount of pastor's daughters that I have spoken to in front of abortion mills with their father there, pastors who were telling me, if my church finds out, I'll I'll lose my job as the pastor. I truly believe Christians cause a lot of abortion because we forget about grace. We forget about love when it comes to our own. We can, and it's the same way in almost everything, Jonathan. If you saw a homeless man on the street starving to death, a lot of us, oh, here's a sandwich. If we had extra, we'd feed them. If we saw a prostitute, we'd talk to her and offer her another job, find her a way out of that lifestyle. If we saw a drug addict crying out in the street, we would help them get into to, to, to rehab. 
But when, when a, one of our own, a Christian, one of our family members falls, stumbles on something, we kick him in the face. We kick him in the face. We hurt our own wounded. We do not show each other that same grace, that same mercy that God shows us to our own people, but we will to people out in the world. And that to me is, is one of the biggest reasons why so many young people leave the church and why so many young people end up getting abortions from the church because they, they see a hypocrisy. They see, we'll go love and feed the people under the bridge, but we'll treat our own people like crap. When can uh, the listeners expect your book to come out? March for Life. March, March for, life. for Life. So next year, January 22. Yes, we are going to have them at the Priest for Life booth at the March for Life. I am super excited. And if we don't have them, you probably won't see me because Janet will murder me for uh, not writing it in time. No. <laughs> of course, you wouldn't do that. No, it's, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm on a deadline. I got to the end of September to, to turn in the final chapters and, and uh, I'm about halfway done. So, Brian, thanks so much for coming on and giving us a preview of all this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Are you going to be back in the States for the March for Life? If the border's open, I hope to be. Yeah. It's been a while since I got to see a lot of people at, uh, at Chider's funeral again, but I, you know, there's, it's been a long time since I've uh, seen a lot of you guys. Yeah. I, my flight got canceled. I was pretty upset. And then it ended up being a nothing storm at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I remember that, but thanks a lot, man. I really appreciate chatting with you again. Absolutely. Anytime. I, I always love talking with you and I can't wait to get out back out on the streets with you again. That's been, that's been since that time in DC. Yeah, I think the, yeah. So the last time I was on the streets with you, we ended up doing abortion victim photography outside in a, an Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez rally. And that was by, by chance. We by were there. Just we were just out there doing outreach and it turned out a happened. rally was nearby. <laughs> exactly. It was great. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Brian Kemper. His book will be coming out next January, and we'll be interviewing him again when that book comes out. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We do hope you enjoyed the conversation, and we do hope you'll go over to lifesitenews.com, click on the podcast tab, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to make sure that you can listen to past episodes and keep up with the weekly episodes on this show, which air every Wednesday. Thanks for listening. Have a great week.